episode 19 of the power of books my name is timo jübner i'm the founder of timo's notes and in this show i interview popular non-fiction authors about their best-selling books and sometimes i jump on solo and talk about my reading process and strategies the goal of the show is to introduce you to new books on the one hand but also to provide you with actionable advice and tools to live a better life my guest today is laura gassner otting Laura is a serial entrepreneur who has started and sold a successful international executive search firm, built philanthropic and political action committees from scratch, and was a White House appointee on the team which created the National Service Project AmeriCorps. Laura is a frequent contributor to the Today Show, Good Morning America, Harvard Business Review, and Oprah Daily. She's also the best-selling author of Limitless and now the author of her new book, Wonder Hell. In Wonder Hell, Laura offers a roadmap to creating the mindset that lets you move forward in life, even when your success tells you to stop right there. From our conversation, you can expect to learn how to overcome uncertainty and imposter syndrome, how to unshackle yourself from other people's opinions, how to borrow confidence from your alter ego, and much more. So now let's get right into our conversation. Enjoy the show. Laura Gassner-Otting, welcome to the Power of Books podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Actually, we just talked about this before we started the recording. Your book is due to release tomorrow, actually, on the day we're recording this. So it's really exciting. And your new book is called Wonder Hell. And the first thing, obviously, that people might think when they hear the title is, what does that even mean? What is Wonder Hell? Yeah, so you know that moment where you've accomplished something you weren't quite sure that you could do? Maybe you sold your first consulting contract. Maybe you ran a 10K and you'd never run more than 5K before. Maybe you subbed in for your boss on a presentation and you're like, ooh, I kind of like kind of like that limelight, right? Maybe I want to do it. There's this moment that we have where we achieve something we don't think is possible. And in that moment, it's like, that's exciting. It's amazing. It's humbling. It's wonderful. But also in that moment, we see a version of ourselves. You see ourselves selling more work, running a half marathon, maybe doing the presentations all the time. And we're like, oh, I kind of maybe I want to see if I could do it. Right. So it's amazing. It's exciting. It's humbling. But also when the burden of potential sits itself down on your shoulders, you also start to feel stress and anxiety and uncertainty and doubt and imposter syndrome and burnout and all of these emotions. It's wonderful, but it's also hell. It's kind of wonder hell. And so wonder hell is all about why that moment of success doesn't feel like we thought it would feel and what we should do about it. That's really interesting. And I'm curious, do you have like a biggest wonder hell moment that you've experienced in your life? I mean, I have lots of wonder hell moments that I've experienced because what I learned about wonder hell is that it actually loves itself a repeat visitor. We actually end up Mm. coming back to wonder hell every time we push towards a different part of our journey. But my, I mean, 
One of my favorite Wonder Hell moments was when my last business, an executive search firm, was about four years old, and I got the call of every entrepreneur's dreams. I got that call of like, hi, Laura, we've been watching you. We like what you're up to, and we would you ever consider getting acquired? We'd like to buy your business. And I will tell you, I was counting my money before I even hung up the phone. I was like, woohoo, I've done it. It's like the perfect thing. So then I got all like gussied up and I I had like two small children and I hadn't worn pantyhose in like 20 years, but I like went to the department store and I tried to figure out what pair of pantyhose would like fit on my body after I'd had babies. Like I was like, what am I even doing? And I put on like the blue suit and I went downtown and I walked into this very fancy downtown office where there was this old white dude who didn't look like me, didn't think like me, didn't talk like me, didn't act like me. And he kind of gave me that sort of like mild condescension that you get from like typically like the older generations that are like, yo, isn't that cute what you've done? And he was telling me all about all the ways that his big firm would take my little firm to the place where it really belonged, right? To, to fulfill its full potential. And I remember thinking in that moment, well, if he thinks he can do it, why can't I just do it? And there was this moment where he like slides the piece of paper across the glass table to me that's going to have the number, right, that he was going to buy my firm for. And I looked at the piece of paper and all I could see through the glass table were my legs and those pantyhose. And I was like, I can't believe I'm wearing pantyhose. Like, <laughs> what am I even doing? Like, I wore pantyhose to go sell my soul to its first suitor? I don't even want a suitor. And I took the piece of paper and I just pushed it right back across the table. And I was like, you know what? I think maybe I'll be the one to take my firm to the place where it belongs. And I didn't even open the piece of paper. Years later, I'm like, I really wonder what that piece of paper said. But that was the moment where I was like, well, if he thinks I can do it, why can't I be the one to do it? And that was, I think, was my first real like wonder hell moment. That's such a great story. And it's a very bold move because, you know, in the first place, you probably thought about, you know, selling your business because otherwise you wouldn't have gone to the meeting. But then being in that moment and just pushing the paper back, that's that's kind of hilarious, but also very bold and inspiring. Yeah. And, you know, it's really funny because part of me is like, I should get back in touch with them. Like, I just I would love to know what the number was but you know it's mm. either going to be a number that was so big that i'm going to be like what was i thinking or it's gonna be a number that was so small that i'm going to have like 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 uh like uh rage like like you know just rage like historic rage so i'm like how could they insult me like that but i think that that happens a lot where we have these moments where people see in us something even if like so wonder hell happens when you see that version of yourself amazing but sometimes you can't see it sometimes it mm. takes a mentor or a coach or a suitor or somebody to be able to say like you know you're actually better at this than you think like you could do more maybe you should apply for the promotion maybe you should sign up for the race sometimes we need that other person to see our wonder totally right yeah i get it so and one thing you you mentioned briefly was that wonder hell is what like in the moment of wonder hell you kind of see the burden of potential like realizing yes. your own potential and i'm curious because you know realizing your own potential and seeing it is the one thing and the first thing but then like what do you think holds people back the most for actually achieving their potential actually fulfilling it well i think the first thing is that we don't believe it 
right? So we hear, we see this vision of ourselves and then we're like, no, I can't do that. That's not mm. for me. That's reserved for somebody else. And we don't believe we can do it. And then the next thing is then we get all these confirming voices in our heads, right? And sometimes those voices are in our heads. Sometimes those voices are right outside of our head, right? Sometimes there are people that love you and they don't want to see you get hurt. So they're like, no, 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 don't take the risk. Sometimes there are people who are jealous and they only see your rise to the lens of their own stagnation. So, you know, you kind of get like a little tepid response. Sometimes there are people who are just scared and they'll be like, oh, I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't do that. That's too scary. When really what they mean is maybe I shouldn't do that. I'm too scared. But yet mm -hmm. we hear all of these voices and we plant them in our garden and we fertilize them and we give them all the same sun and we let them all grow to the same height, right? We give all these people votes in our lives who shouldn't even have voices. So I think that when I, when I found myself in Wonder Hell, the next Wonder Hell after my, my, my last book came out and I was like, it debuted at number one, uh, two on the Washington Post bestseller list. How do I get to number one? What about the New York Times? Like, you know... Someone's got to be under the oak tree with Oprah. Like, why not me? She got to talk to someone, right? And I had all these imaginations of like what it could be. I, I was so stuck in this moment. So I started talking to other authors that I knew and then other speakers that I knew. And then that, you know, it, it blossomed into talking to a hundred different glass ceiling shatterers and Olympic medalists and startup unicorns because I thought they'd be able to help me figure out a way out. And what I learned from them is that there's no way out. There's just a way to actually look forward to it, to enjoy it, to plan for it, to learn from it. Because on the other side of every wonder hell we have is just the next one and the next one, if we're lucky, the next one after that. And so one of the things that these people, what these people did is they did three things. The first was they learned to embrace their ambition. They were like, you know what? I want to be under the oak tree with Oprah. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to own that. I'm going to make that. I'm like, why not? Why not me? It's got to be someone. Number one. Number two, all these voices, the slings and arrows and the pain points and the uncertainty, all the tsunami of an emotions, they didn't see them as limitations. They saw them as invitations, that all of these good, bad, and ugly complex emotions were not slings and arrows to be absorbed and to be swallowed down and to suffer through, but these were actually incredibly helpful allies that show us that we're on the right track. And then the last thing that they did is they never said, okay, I'm done. Success is not a finite destination. Success is just the next place. It's not an endpoint, but it's a waypoint. So I need to know that I'm always going to have to learn how to continue being comfortable, being uncomfortable, because as I said, this is a cyclical journey. On the other side of this one is just the next one and the next one and the next one. Hmm. Yeah, so that's also something you cover that every time you get to the next step, you're in you're in the situation again, you know, where you everything is new, you don't know what you do, it's uncertainty, it's like imposter syndrome kicks in. So I wonder how do you deal with first first of all uncertainty, like when you have to do new things, you know, you're not sure whether the outcome will be what you expect it to be or what you want it to be. And then like secondly Like, how do you deal with imposter syndrome, not feeling like you're, you, you are where you're supposed to be, basically? Yeah. So, you know, I, the, the book is organized as an amusement park. 
Because, you know, just like we thought success was going to be fun. And then you get there and you're like, wait a minute, this isn't fun. It's actually harder. There's a faster pace. I have a bigger hunger. Like it's actually gotten harder. Amusement parks are kind of the same way. Like you think you're going to go, you're going to go to all the towns, go on all the rides. It's going to be amazing. And then it's three o'clock in the afternoon and the sun is beating down on you and you're like a little sunburn and that, you know, corn dog in your stomach and the beer you've had is maybe threatening to make an exit on the roller coaster that you don't even want to go on, but you're in that ride. And you're like, I thought this was going to be fun. So I feel like success is a little bit the same way. So Wonder Hell is organized in as an amusement park, and there's three towns, Imposter Town, Doubtsville, and Burnout City. So the first town, the first third of the book really talks about imposter syndrome and what do we do when we find ourselves in this place. And I mean, let's just talk about the 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 word, the term imposter syndrome itself, like the gall of the term imposter syndrome. Like, oh, you're an imposter. You don't belong here. Maybe you should leave. You have a syndrome. Are you sick? Perhaps you should lie down, right? So the whole idea of the term imposter syndrome says there's something wrong with the person who has it. And it never points the finger at the environment in which they are, the environment that wasn't built for people who look like them, think like them, act like them. Think about the guy who was wanting to buy my business. I felt like an imposter sitting in his office because there was nothing in that office that looked like me or represented me or, you know, was a home for me. So I didn't see myself moving forward because it didn't make any sense. So this imposter syndrome idea, we have to stop saying that there is something wrong with us for doing it, but maybe start congratulating ourselves for getting ourselves into a room that wasn't built to welcome people like us. It's not, oh my God, I haven't done this before. It's, oh my God, I haven't done this before. And so the people mm. that I spoke to who thrived in Wonder Hell were able to turn that imposter syndrome around and not see it as a limitation, but to see it as an invitation. Then you also asked about uncertainty. In the, um, in, the, in the Doubtsville part of the book, I talk about uncertainty, and it's, that's sort of the roller coaster ride. That's all, the, all the emotions have different rides that are attached to them. And I, one of the people that I profile in the book is a woman by the name of Carrie Lorenz. And Carrie Lorenz was the first female F-14 fighter pilot in the U.S. Navy kind of a badass, right? She gets on stage, she's six foot tall, she 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 uh, wears leather from head to toe, and she like tells you the story about how you land like a $2 billion fighter jet on a tiny postage stamp of a rollicking, rolling uh, 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 aircraft carrier in the middle of an ocean, when by the way, the average age of the sailor on that boat is 19 years old. Right. So wow. you have like 1.7 seconds to go from twice the speed of the average roller coaster to a dead stop. And you're counting on a 19 year old to help you do it. OK, kind of terrifying. And um, what she said is that there are three things. There are three things that we can focus on at any given time. And it's something like meatball angle line of attack. And like that's it. All you're doing when you're trying to land that plane is meatball, angle, land of attack, you know, line of attack. How are you going to do it? And she said, when the pandemic hit, she knew that she had to go back to that thing. Three things. What is in your span of control? She focused on family, fitness, and finances. Everything else that didn't include family, fitness, and finances, she pushed aside. What is in your span of control and what is not? So you know, I was talking to a friend this morning who was about to run the Boston Marathon and he's like, I've done all the work, I've done all the training, I did the last final training run and now I'm just tapering and there's mm -hmm. nothing I can do. I mean, is it going to be 105 degrees on Marathon Monday? Is it going to be 30 degrees and sleeting? Who knows? It's Boston. And I said, all you can do is focus on what you can do. You focus on the process, you did the work, 
You had the habits. All you can do from now until the marathon, two weeks from now, is focus on your, you know, focus on not getting injured, focus on, you know, stretching, you know, mobility, hydration, nutrition. Like if you eat a bag of potato chips and drink four beers every night, you're going to have a bad marathon. What is in your span of control? So when everything is uncertain, there are things we can control and there are things we cannot control. So like double down on what you can control and don't worry about the rest. That's a really good point. Yeah, especially the last one. Because I think many people, when they go on like a new job or entrepreneurial journey or start a new project, what they want in terms of certainty or uncertainties, they would like to know that the outcome is like 100% certain. They would like that if if they focus on, on like the controllables, as you said, the outcome is given. But that's actually not the case, you know, in many, many cases, because you can't make sure that the outcome will come. You can only focus on the controllables. So in that in that sense, I guess you've also had that when you started your entrepreneurial journey, because as you said, you, you eventually ended up selling the search firm that uh, you built and then, you know, started another business and you know you always took these leaps of faith kind of first from being an employee to then starting your own business and i wonder because in those situations you also weren't certain that you know the search firm would be successful or after that you know your new business would be successful so how did you make sure not to let that hold yourself back from taking the leap yeah um you know i i I could probably give you an answer that tells you all the reasons why I knew for sure things would work and how I made strategic and thoughtful and planful and yeah, but that'd be lying. That'd be lying. A lot of times mm -hmm. I made the leap because I couldn't not make the leap. It was either too exciting, it was too interesting, uh, an opportunity I couldn't pass away was there, or maybe I was just running away from the thing that I was doing before that was just so awful I had to do something else. Um, Let me tell you another story. I interviewed a woman named Dory Clark for the book. And Dory is a, a New York, or she's a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. She's a, uh, a business professor at one of the top uh, business schools in the United States. She, she writes books about reinventing, like reinventing you is one of her books, like reinventing yourself. Um, so she's all about leadership, all about reinvention. And interestingly enough, she is right now in the middle of her own reinvention because she decided that in addition to doing all this on the side, she wants to learn how to score Broadway musicals. She wants to write a Broadway musical. Amazing, right? So she signs up for this program, one of the best programs in the country where you can learn how to do this. And she gets immediately rejected and ends up, you know, uh, applying, applying, applying and finally gets in. On the very first day, she's in the room and everyone's going around the table introducing themselves. And this one's written two musicals and that one's won a Tony Award and this one's, you know, done 16 other different things. And she's like, I could have sat there in that moment and put up my hoodie and gone, oh my God, and shrunk out of the room and said, I've only got three songs. I've written three whole songs. Or I could say, you know, Dory, everything that got you to here isn't going to get you to there. But at every time in your career where you've tried to learn something new, you've figured it out. You've created a system. You've created a process. You've learned how to ask the right questions. You've learned how to surround yourself with people who can help you get there. So even if you don't know how Like what to do over there, you understand how to create a process that's going to help you get there. It's not that you're not good at writing Broadway musicals. You're just not good yet. 
at writing Broadway musicals. And I think that ability to say to ourselves that this because we want to like, look, I mean, the only things I've ever wanted to do that have ever interested me are things that I've no qualifications for. That's why they're interesting. If I'd done them already, they wouldn't be interesting anymore. Right. right. So we, we are constantly finding ourselves in this wonder hell moment in between who we were yesterday and who we want to become and just realize we can become tomorrow. So the only way to walk confidently towards the tomorrow is to say, well, I've survived all my worst days so far. All of my failures haven't been finale. They've been fulcrum. I've been able to grow and learn and iterate and innovate and change. I can still do that just in this other milieu. Mm, yeah, so it's, it's a lot about the confidence and belief that you have the abilities to learn anything you know that, that's new or basically master anything that's new and build, as you said, the systems, the processes. And that's really interesting because um, it, it touches on one subject that I wanted to talk about anyway, which is uh, in the book you call it borrowed confidence. And, and I really love that because you you talk about the alter ego effect as, as well by Todd Herman and then mm -hmm. how you created your own alter ego with LGO, which also explains your Instagram handle and everything. <laughs> So I really love that. And I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that. Like, what does your alter ego look like for you? And do you have like any triggers to get to step into it or how it works for you? Yeah. So my name is Laura Gassner Odding. It's a lot of names. So everyone calls me LGO. People have called me LGO for 20 years. And I am Laura, a raging introvert who would love to just sit in my house and write books and snuggle my dogs and my, my kids and my husband and never talk to strangers. That would be like dreamy for me. But I make my living as a keynote speaker and a media, you know, guest media personality. So my job, I only get paid when I talk to strangers. So I have to talk to strangers. Like that's, you know, part, of, part and parcel of my job, um, which is amazing. And it's an incredible privilege that anybody wants to listen to me talk or, you know, read my books or, you know, listen to podcasts I'm on or any of that. But part of my job means that I get hired to go speak in front of 5,000 people, 10,000 people. And you can't play small. You can't be introverted when you do that. And so my last book, Limitless, is bright yellow. And a, a dear friend of mine was like, Laura, listen, you always, you always post about these celebrities in their hashtag Limitless Yellow how come you never wear yellow on stage? And I was like, because I hate yellow and I don't look good in yellow and I don't want to wear yellow. And she's like, all right, it's time. You got to do it. You got to do it. So not only that, she also said, and you need to tell the story of when you were really sick. Now in 2021, I was so sick that I actually didn't know if I was going to see 2022. And I never told that story publicly. I just, I, I hadn't done it. I hadn't done it before the pandemic, obviously. And then as we were coming out of the pandemic, I didn't know how or if I should. And she was like, trust me, you need to do it. So she had referred me to a, a speech, um, that, uh, that, that I, I was giving and it's 5,000 people in Dallas. This is the group of people who they, they, it's a networking marketer group that they, they sell caffeine patches that you put on your arm, slow release caffeine patches that you wear all day long and you put on your arm. So I'm walking into this arena, 5,000 heavily caffeinated people who, and, and it's like the voice of God comes over. Welcome to the stage, Laura, 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 Gassner, Odding, Odding, Odding. It was just like, let's get ready to rumble. And I stride out onto stage for the first time ever wearing head to toe, bright yellow, knowing I'm going to open with the story of being super sick. And I am terrified 
terrified. But the music is pumping and they're, let's welcome to the stage and everyone's screaming. And I walk out and I throw my arms open. I go, hello, Dallas. And the crowd roared. And because they roared, I went, whoa, and I roared back. And then they roared back. And I was like, oh, my God. And I felt amazing. And for the next 59 minutes, I preached. I just, I was up there. I was on fire, standing ovations. It was amazing. And what I realized from that is that I didn't have to have what I thought I needed, which was 60 minutes of confidence and courage to get up on stage and do that. I didn't need that. I only needed 60 seconds of confidence and courage because they gave me their love. So I gave them my love back. They gave me their courage. So I gave them my courage back. And it became this incredible, like energy force field where we were just absolutely feeding into each other. And, you know, we all get so scared and we're like, I don't know if I can do the thing. Like the hard thing about doing hard things isn't the hard it's just the do. It's the starting, right? Like it's just the starting. And as you get started, you start feeling the energy and the momentum and the family, the combination of friends and family that should be around you to help you get to where you want to get to. And so for me, that really became the sort of LGO on stage. And so now when I walk out onto stage, I just embody that person that walked out, you know, two years ago onto that stage in Dallas and was like, hello, Dallas. That's such a cool story. I love that. And did, did Limit Yes Yellow, did you end up liking the color and, and wearing it or still not? <laughs> you know, it's funny. So I, I, I then wore Limitless Yellow every time I spoke after that. That's and cool. when I went to go do Good Morning America in January, I like walked out of the elevator. The producer's like, what? You're not wearing Limitless Yellow? Like, so it's like become a thing. But now <laughs> I had to make a decision, like is Wonder Hell yellow or not? But like if Wonder Hell's yellow, then my kids were like, you're never going to ever be able to not wear yellow for like for the rest of your life. So Wonder Hell is blue. But um, it, what's really fun about it is that inside the book, the dust jacket, the book itself is actually yellow. So it's like a little like Easter egg, a little homage to, to, to Limitless. So now I have to decide if I'm going to, you know, wear still wear yellow on stage or not. But it's funny because, you know, this whole idea of the alter ego is like it, it's pretty basic, right? Like, who are you? When you are the very best version of yourself, when you are crushing it, you're making it rain, you are just absolutely on fire. And maybe it's this loud, brash thing in front of 5,000 people. Maybe it's you like helping a loved one or a colleague quietly through a really hard moment. Maybe you're putting together a presentation where nobody sees you. It's in the dark. You're all alone. Like it doesn't have to be like a big public screamy thing. It could be like a quiet, private, you know, really like meaningful moment. But who are you when you're your very best, best version of yourself? And how do you figure out how to embody that person? For me, it's standing backstage and remembering, being expansive, being open, being vulnerable, living in the moment, having joy. When I'm that person, when I'm LGO, my, con my confidence is so contagious. It, it is, it's infectious. People love it. If I walked out on stage and I was like, hello, Dallas, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> like nobody would care. Like they'd be like, oh, good. It's time for me to take a bathroom break. Right. So figuring out who you are when you're the very best version of you and then just it's not fake it till you make it. You're just being the same. Ver you're not faking it because you already are that person. You're just doing it intentionally enough time so that it becomes muscle memory.
Right. Yeah, I love that the point that you made. It's not like stepping into a different person because you are that. You just, you know, maybe you're not that all the time, but in that scenario, in that, you know, in that moment, you unleash it. So yes. when you when you step on stage, do you have like some kind of pre-game ritual, quote unquote, or something that gets you into that state before you step on stage, or does that just, ha just happen naturally? No. You know, I mean, I don't drink. I don't drink coffee normally, so I usually have coffee the morning before I speak. So that's like, I am awake. I am up. Um, but I honestly, like, I I tend to stand backstage and look at the audience. And I know, like, a lot of people are like, oh, that sounds terrifying. Like, I was scary. Like, you're looking at, but I look at them and I think to myself, like, these people are here because they believe in this company or this mission or themselves. And they're here because they want to learn and they want to get better and they want to grow. And I've spent 30 years of my career learning some things that maybe they need. Like, I know that I'm of service to the audience. I know that I'm there. So, you know, speaking in public is scary because you're in the limelight, you're in the spotlight. But if you think about your audience as being the star, And it's just your job. You're just the you're just the messenger, right? For their starlight, for their spotlight. For me, that kind of makes me less nervous. It sort of reminds mm. me why I'm there. That's brilliant. Yeah, because you realize it's not about you or like you making any small mistakes or maybe say a wrong word or anything. Yeah. Because that's not what matters, you know. As you said, it's about providing value to the audience. So that's, yes, that's really exciting. Oh, that's And in really everything great. we do, in everything we do, if you. Right. If you think about why you're doing the thing you're doing, who you're doing it for, it 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 actually makes you better at the thing you're doing. Right. Yeah. And and like most of the time, we worry so much about what other people might think, and like a second later or a minute later, most of them have already forgotten, or basically everyone has already forgotten about what you yes. did wrong or what you know you thought was. Like. Well, they've forgotten about you also. My favorite Eleanor True. Roosevelt quote is, uh, we would worry much less about what other people thought about us if we realized how seldomly they did. That's, that's a great quote. Uh, I love that. <laughs> so I wanted to touch on that, actually, because it really resonated with me when you said that, you know, we tell our ourselves the lie that people in our life won't like us when we are who we really want to be. And, mm -hmm. you know, I had that fear when I started my Instagram page, you know, sharing books I read, you know, reviewing the books. I was like, well, what if people think I'm I'm like stupid for doing that or whatever you know i want to be influencer or whatever you know and in fact it was so bad that for the first one or two years nobody literally nobody i knew knew about the page i had wow and, and like even four years into it some of my family members still didn't know that i had mm. it i was doing it when i had like fifty thousand followers you know but my family still didn't know what i was doing and then At some point I realized, you know, it, it was holding me back so much because I felt that I I was kind of hiding myself in some mm -hmm. situations, you know, and that was just holding me back so much from actually, you know, growing this thing and, you know, getting everything, like fulfilling the potential of the project and the business mm -hmm. and everything. So, yeah, I, the quote was, was great. And like, do you have any other things, any tools or, or how do you deal with like, what other people think about you, the fear of that. Well, so I try to remind myself a lot that most, well, 
you know, we tend in our lives to give votes to people who shouldn't even have voices, right? There are people who come up to us and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing that thing. That's so scary. Maybe you shouldn't do it. And what they really mean is I could never do it, right? Like maybe I'm too scared. Maybe I could never do it. And, mm. and, but yet we hear that and we're like, oh, maybe they're right. Maybe this random person I haven't known since middle school knows me and they're right. Or maybe we listen to our parents. And the last time I lived in the same house as my parents, I was 17 years old. I brought the car back late for curfew with the radio turned all the way up, but the gas tank turned all the way down, right? Like, so when I told him I was going to sell my company or I was going to leave, I was working in the White House, I'm leaving the White House to start a company or I'm going to drop out of law school to go to the White House, like they thought I was insane. And, you know, because they didn't like they they had my best interest at heart, but they didn't know my heart. They didn't know who I really was. It's been 35 years since I lived in the same house as my family, and yet they still have opinions about who I should be and how I should be and, God forbid, what I can't be. The truth is they just don't know me. They don't know what I'm capable of. And then there's this other people in our lives who, like, you know, they only see our rise through the lens of their own stagnation. And so you get a lot of, like, smiles in the front, knives in the back. Mm. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of people who have a lot of opinions about us, and I think that, you know, what's that expression? Like everyone else's, like, like uh, other people's opinions are none of my business. Mm. You know, I think that's a really important thing to, to remember. So what do I do? I think about whose opinions do I actually want? Like who's, who's, whose praise would mean a lot to me? Those are the same people whose criticism I'd actually want to take. But if you're getting right. criticism and you're getting shade and you're getting doubt and you're getting this sort of like, you know, all these voices in your ear from people who like, if they told you you're doing a great job, you'd be like, oh, great. But it wouldn't mean that much to you. You got to like turn the volume down on, on those people for sure. So, you know, I, I, I'm very careful about whose opinions I take. And I've also learned to be very good at saying when somebody said, can I give you some advice? And I'm like, nope, <laughs> nope, that's it. No, thank you. I'm all good. That's fine too. I love that. Yeah. As you said that, I was just thinking about, you know, most of the people I worried about what they might think, I wouldn't take their advice. You know, I wouldn't care if they said, you know, it's great. It wouldn't really matter. So that's, that's really a great filter to apply. Yes. I love that. And the problem is, is that we still hear all their criticism and we take it and we plant them in the garden in the same way. Mm -hmm. Right. And we give all their votes, all the same sunshine. You know, I had a, another friend of mine who's a, who's a writer just posted something on Facebook this morning. And he said, what do you do with criticism? I sent my manuscript out to a hundred people and I got some great feedback. People loved it. And then I got some that I just can't get out of my mind, some really negative stuff. And now I'm wondering if I should just put the manuscript in the trash. And I said to him, I was like, well, who are those people? Like I write personal development and self-help books. I have friends who are academics who write about academic leadership. They read my manuscript. They didn't love it. They mm. liked it because they like me, but they didn't love it because it's not their stuff. But my newsletter writers, I have 20,000 newsletter readers who read my stuff every single week. Those people read my manuscript and they could not wait to buy the book, right? So like, yes. who, like whose advice am I going to take? I love my academic leadership writing friends. They're amazing, but they're not my target audience. They're not the people who I want to love the book. So like everyone's opinion should not be considered equal. 
that's a great example because as you said you know academic writing might be a lot different than you know what you, what the books you're writing and right the, your friends might not be the people who end up reading your book you know so right i mean my, <laughs> my my readers would hate these academic leadership books <laughs> right and that's fine <laughs> right i mean like the you know my grandfather used to say that's why there's chocolate and that's why there's vanilla right like everybody mm. gets to choose what they want to choose and you don't have to be for everyone but you need to figure out who your people are and be a hundred percent for them. That's great. Yeah. I love that. And then just take the feedback, the criticism from them. You know, if it's from them, then it's actually worth, worth something, you know, then you should consider it and then like fix the things that they might critique. Yeah. Right. Yes. Interesting. So to get to um, Burnout City, I want to uh, talk a little bit about um, prioritizing because, you know, Obviously, you can't do everything. That's where burnout comes into play. You talk a yes. little bit about hustle culture and stuff like that. And that we can't put all the stuff on our blades because we just have like limited time, obviously. And what's your like biggest thing that you or your biggest strategy to prioritize and make sure that you know you don't overwork yourself? So my biggest strategy is to figure out where you are important. And to know where you're not that important, the best piece of personal or professional advice I ever got in my life was, Laura, you're just not that important. And at the time, I thought I was super important. I had a young family. I had a growing business. I was involved in my community. I'm like, I have to show up for everybody all the time. And the woman who gave me this advice basically was like, if you're picking up your kids from school three days a week so that you can be the greatest mom ever and taking them to the parks, you can be the greatest mom ever and then coming home and making dinners, you can be the greatest mom ever. But the whole time you're on your cell phone with your office so that you can be the greatest boss ever and the greatest you know, client service manager ever. And you're not being good for either of them, right? You're not showing up for like everybody knows that you're not entirely there. So all you're doing is running yourself ragged. And she said, when you walk into school and somebody says, would you, you know, would you, would you uh, chair the bake sale or you're, you promise your client that you're going to get them the contract tomorrow when really you get it to them in two days, like think about where you are that important and where you're not. And what she was saying to me is there are moments, there are moments like when I pick up my kids, I should be able to spend an hour with them at the end of the day and just be fully present for them. There are moments where my clients need me to be 100% fully laser focused on their problem. But when I was trying to be super important to all people at all times, and I was failing everybody, I was, all I was doing was serving my own ego, my own need to be important. And so what I would say is figure out where you are that important. What is the highest and best use of your time? What can nobody else do but you? And double down there and the rest of it, learn how to delegate or let go of. That's, that's great. It's a different perspective than what you usually read or hear somewhere else. So that's why I think it's really interesting because yeah. Yeah, we play a lot of different roles in life and we kind of need to find a balance between all these roles. And as you said, finding out where you are the most important at that moment, that's a great takeaway. Um, one other thing you talk about in, in the Burnout City chapter, which by the way, I love the way your book is structured, which you quickly uh, like said, it's structured in the way of amusement park and it's great that you name all the chapters, you know, by different rights and stuff like that. And I realized that it makes, it also makes things a lot easier to remember because it's like a, like a, an analogy or something like a mm -hmm. mental bridge to, to remember things. So I love that. And it's fun to read that way. <laughs> yes. 
Well, we're creating, we're actually creating a quiz at, at wonderhellquiz.com um, where you can take, you know, answer 15 questions and it'll tell you like what ride you're on right now and what rides are coming up. So um, it's, it's, it's a lot of, it's, it's really, it's really fun to be able to work with a, 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 a differently organized self-help book. True. Is that quiz already live or do you know when it will be live? Uh, it'll be live uh, tomorrow. So by the time this uh, by the time this podcast comes out, it will absolutely be live. Great. So there was wonderhell.quiz, right? In case uh, wonderhellquiz.com. Oh, okay. Right. So in that chapter, uh, you talk about also the hedonic treadmill. And, mm -hmm. you know, because you said that obviously um, the wonderhell moment, you know, success isn't finite. There's always like the next level, the next step. But how can we make sure not to get lost in this treadmill, you know, where we try to constantly keep up with the Joneses, buy new things, get new stuff, you know, step up our social game or whatever. Like, uh, how can we escape that treadmill? Yeah. So, I mean, this is this, this hedonic treadmill is like uh, this idea is, you know, I, 50 years old or something that says that every time we achieve something, we're like, Ooh, what about the next thing? Well, what about the next thing? Like I got, I got a new, I got a new car. What about a fancier car? What about the fanciest car? Like each time we keep wanting the next thing. So, um, it's very important for us to ask ourselves at every age and every life stage, what is important to us? What does success mean to us? So the example that I use in the book is, you know, if you're, if you finally were able to join the country club, amazing. But when you're at the country club, you look across the street and you're like, there's a nicer country club. And how do I get to that one? And then you're at the nicer country club and you're like, oh, but all these other people are at the country club down by the ocean. How do I get to that one? And you end up working so hard to try to keep, keep go, you know, upping, upping, upping what you're doing. That The only time you see that super fancy country club is when your kids post a picture from the pool on Instagram. And it's like, lucky them, not so lucky you, right? So if the reason you wanted to join the country club in the first place was that you could have great weekends by the pool with your family, then if you've got the great weekends by the pool with your family, then maybe it's enough. So the question is, what does success mean to me? Do I want to be pursuing these things because I actually want them? Look, we can't be insatiably hungry for someone else's goals. So if you're looking on Instagram and all you're seeing are like fancy house, fancy car, Fancy plane, fancy vacation, fancy clothes, fancy jewelry. You're like, oh, that must be the definition of success. But if you're not the kind of person who wants that sort of stuff, then you can achieve and you can keep running on the treadmill and keep grabbing the next thing that you think is going to make you happy. But studies show that those things don't make us happy for very long unless they're things that mean something to us. So we have to keep asking ourselves that question of why do I want this? What will having this thing get me? And will having that thing actually give me the satisfaction, the fulfillment that I want in my life? And often the answer is no, because the next question is, well, is it worth the sacrifice then to go there? Yeah, we essentially hold ourselves back from enjoying what we currently have by focusing on what we want next. And you know, We let the wants get in the way of the haves. Right. Yeah, that's that's... That put it very briefly and on the point. I love that. So to kind of wrap it up, I have two more shorter questions yes. for you. Actually, the first one is a little hard probably, but I'm curious to hear your answer. And this is originated from a content format I, I tried on Instagram where I basically summarize books in one sentence. Obviously, you can't summarize all the contents in one sentence, but it's kind of a 
you know, it could either be a fun way of putting it or maybe like a main message or main idea. And I'm curious, how would you summarize Wonder Hell in one sentence? Oh, uh, how would I summarize it in one sentence? I would say um, how to how to embrace the burden of your potential and actually enjoy the ride. I love that. That's great. And the people will get the answers in the book for sure. <laughs> people will get the answers in the book for sure. Yes. And then the, the last question for you, because as a writer and author, you know, and people who write also read a lot. And since the show is called The Power of Books, I ask everyone who's on what like books have impacted their lives the most. You, know, you can name oh. however many you want. Gosh, wow, that's such a good question. Um, I mean, I can tell you that um, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair made me a progressive Democrat. I can tell you that uh, Confederacy of Dunces uh, by John Kennedy O'Toole made me realize that you can be smart and funny at the same time. Um, my, my husband on our first anniversary of dating gave me the Fagel's translation of the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, which, I mean... How cute that he thought I was smart enough to read those. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, there, there have been books that, um, that, that as I've read them have just like stayed in my soul and in my core. Gretchen Rubin's Happiness Project was a book that I read at a time where I was like, I don't know. I mean, my life is fine. Like I have a lot of privilege. Why aren't I happy? And she writes in the very first page of those books, like I'm a rich white lady living in New York city. Why do I have to complain about like, why did I have to go on a project to make myself happy? And I was like, Oh my God, like she owned it. She owned who she was. And so there are just a number of books that as I read them, I was like, Oh, that makes sense of who this person inside of me is that hasn't been figuring, hasn't figured out yet how to express herself. That's really interesting. And I haven't heard of the first two, so I got to look oh. them up afterwards. Yes, uh, yes. The Confederacy of Dunces and The Jungle. I mean, they're very old books, but they, uh, yeah. I mean, there are certain books that you read at certain times in your life that are just game changing. You know, people are always like, oh, I need to find a mentor. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Find a library card. <laughs> like there, there are right. so many mentors in books. Like I spent all my time writing everything I know into, into a book. I could just hand you it. It's a much more efficient way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's, you can teach way more in the book, you know, which is just a few bucks for people. And yes. like you put all, you put decades into it, you know, that's more value than you could ever tell them in a conversation of an hour or two, you know, sitting down with them for dinner or lunch or whatever. Absolutely. So, totally. And I appreciate it that you put the value in the book and that we talked about it today. And thanks for coming on. Where can people, or what's the best place to for people to go to when they want to check out more of your stuff or follow yeah. you? Yeah. So as you said, um, my name is Laura Gassner Odding. My Instagram handle, all my social handles are hey l g o like h e y l g o. So you can find me anywhere, um, anywhere on social at hey l g o. You can check out the book at wonderhell.com. And if you want to take the quiz and figure out. If you're in Imposter Town, Doubtsville, Burnout City, and what ride you're on and how to get off of it, you can go to wonderhellquiz.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Laura, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. It was great. Thanks. Bye-bye. 
All right, that's it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show to never miss a new episode. Also, check out our YouTube channel if you prefer video podcasts. All right, guys, I'll see you next week. Have a great day. Bye-bye.